Well, hello everybody and welcome to the next episode of my podcast series, Did It Anyway. I am excited to bring you another special guest today with another amazing story. Now, this one is unique uh, because he continues to have that challenge today as he did for a number, as he has for a number of years. And my special guest today is Dean Nicholson. And now I've known Dean for a few years now. Uh, we met doing some work together a couple of years ago and I am... I'm amazed by his story. So I've been wanting to interview him for a while, um, but I know they've been living overseas for a little while as well and they've just got back. So he's he's back and I can get him on the call, which I'm really excited to do. And, and I think if you really pay attention to what he has to say today, you'll be able to apply some things to your life that will make a huge difference for you to be able to achieve what you want to achieve because he's a great example of somebody who just goes out and gets it uh, and willing to do what whatever he wants really is the best way to describe it and when you hear his story you'll understand why that is so very impressive so i want to first off just uh, introduce dean dean uh, why don't you say hello to everyone and and say a bit about who you are hey g'day darren thanks a lot and hi everyone um yeah thanks for the opportunity to come on to, on your podcast did it anyway and look i've as you said i try to do things in my life i've lived a life which has been what some people would say quite challenging in the fact that I was born uh, with a condition on my eyes which uh, caused me to be legally blind since birth. And so since birth, so you've not really been able to see much at all. We'll talk about the details in just a second. But that is why I think this is so significant for me. Ever since I've known you, you're, you're blind. And... And you don't really refer to it like that too much. Is it, you just said that your eyes don't work properly, but that doesn't stop you doing anything else. And that's what I'm, <laughs> That's why I'm really uh, keen to have this chat because I love the attitude. And what you're going to get from Dean today is just this uh, desire to just do whatever the heck he wants, <laughs> which is irrelevant that I can't see as well as I do. <laughs> yeah, in fact, in, in my head, I, I, people often say to me, you know, you don't even look blind. You can't even tell that you're blind. You don't act like a blind person. Um, and, you know, it's, it's amazing to us that you you just seem to be, I don't want to use the word normal, you just seem to be, uh, you know, just like us, you know, someone who just does what, what everyone else does and gets through life. Um, but in my head, in the background, I've got, you know, all these issues where I really wanted to not appear different. I wanted to really try and 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 be the best person that I could, but but not let my blindness show. And in a way, it's in some ways it's been a little bit of a a hindrance to me personally because there's a lot of years where I was, um, you know, I struggled with with how I felt and how. I thought that people perceived me. And what were some of those sort of thoughts that you had? Uh, look, for for example, you know, I, I felt, you know, I never really wanted to look different. I remember in, in, in school when I was growing up, I never really wanted to be different. In primary school, you know, if you couldn't see the blackboard, the teachers would say, well, come and sit up the front. I, had, I would have to sit uh, two, two feet from the blackboard to be able to read anything. And even then, the print would need to be like uh, half a metre tall for me to be able to read it from that distance. <laughs> yeah. 
So I've never read a blackboard or anything like that in my life, but yet they'd sit me right in the front of the classroom about two metres from the blackboard on this big desk that was different to everybody else. And I, I kind of felt like I stuck out and I, my personality is really, I'm not your extrovert kind of person. I'm a more quiet, work-in-the-background, conservative type of person. Um, so it didn't really suit my personality now you to be men- treated like that. You mentioned that um, people sometimes don't know that you're blind. And when we first yeah. met, I had no idea. And it took me quite a while to figure out that you were blind, which I must say is is an extremely impressive effort. Uh, whether you were trying to do it deliberately or not, the fact that you don't even you don't behave like you can't see is just fascinating to me. Uh, but I think that that seemed to be caused from from the way that you were brought up, and so your your parents had I would say unique way um, in helping you to realise that you're just like everybody else, just something didn't work. So tell us a bit about your parents and the effect they had for the way that you've lived the rest of your life. Yeah, for sure. Um, look, I'm, I, in our family, there's six siblings. Um, I, I've got an older brother and I've got four younger sisters. Now, when I was young, I had a turned eye. I had to have an operation on it and when I was two years old. And it was at that point that the ophthalmologist said to my mum, oh, he's got retinitis pigmentosa, which is a condition where on, you know, you have the retina on the back of your eye that receives all the light, has the, the receptors there to receive the light. You get pigments on those receptors, which, which then blocks their ability to be able to function correctly. And that generally starts from the outside of the retina and slowly works its way in. And it's like a form of tunnel vision, and that's, that's how it works. So the ophthalmologist said to my mum, look, he's, this, this young guy will have to have his eyes tested as he gets older, but uh, he's going to have significant vision loss throughout his life. It's a genetic condition, so they said, we better check his older brother. And he had the condition as well. It's my brother, Lauren. And... Uh, you know, all the ophthalmologists and the doctors said to mum was, there's nothing we can do for you. You'll just have to take them home and look after them. You know, and my mum was, you know, in her early early 20s, you know, and two young boys, both of them blind, and was sent home with, with no support, no, no discussion about what or how to to help these, these young boys grow up and... and um, uh, function in society, but together, mum and dad did I, what I think is the the perfect and exactly the right thing to do was that they treated us no different from uh, if they had had children who could see. Um, now the the next three girls that came along could see fine, and it wasn't until twelve years later our third fourth sister, sorry. Louise came along and she has the condition as well. So there's three out of six, um, uh, which is, you know, statistically a 50-50 chance that uh, a mum and dad would have kids with the condition because they both carry the recessive gene for, for RP, retinitis pigmentosa. Right, it's just bad mum luck, and, isn't it? Yeah, 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 and that's right. Look, I think it's one in, it was one in 10,000 people carry this gene. So in the, in the entire population, one in 10,000, it may even be 
less than that now. Um, but, you know, there's the chance that if you carry the gene, you will partner up and have children with uh, somebody who also carries the gene. And in, in the particular version that I have, the, both the recessive genes leaves a 50-50 chance that, uh, that your children will have the condition. So flip a coin. Yeah, luck of the draw. Yeah, wow. <laughs> Fascinating. And, um, and so, but they, yeah. they, they took an approach, you mentioned they took an approach in the way that they parented you that they treated you pretty much like everyone else. Now, give me a couple of examples of how that was the same that might not sound so extraordinary if you weren't blind, but you were blind. So tell me some of those things that you still did being blind. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we, so we were never treated any different. So, you know, for our fifth birthday, we got given a bicycle, you know, or we were given soccer balls and things to kick and chase and all that kind of thing. And we were sent out. We lived sort of in a, a country rural town. So it, it wasn't super busy, but we were able to go and climb trees and mark around in paddocks and ride our bikes through the town and, uh, and you know, in, in country New South Wales. So our parents never really seemed to worry about us. They just said, off you go, go and do. You know, you have a friend, go up to his place and hang out. Ride your bike over there and, and go climb a tree. My dad gave me a toolbox for Christmas with a hammer and a saw and a drill, you know, so that, you know, and because he was quite a handy, he was a tradesman, plumber and a roof tiler, um, and he, he would be always doing house maintenance or fixing things, uh, you know, or working around the house, and he he would involve me particularly because my brother was more musical and more, uh, maybe more... Uh, athletic and that kind of thing, whereas I was more outdoorsy, outdoorsy kind of building, um, creative kind of person. So that would involve me in building a bed or, uh, you know, building up a goal or something like that. And I, I can remember quite young holding the end of the timber when my dad would be cutting something with a circular saw and then he'd say, here you go, why don't you have a go? <laughs> so he, he'd obviously be watching, so I would not doing something that was going to cut my leg off or yeah. where I'd lose a hand. But, you know, I definitely, he'd say, oh, no, off you go. He wouldn't give me any instruction on how it would work. He would just let me work that out, you know. How's the contrast, I was going to say, how's the contrast now between sometimes as parents we get so concerned about our kids even going to the milk bar around the corner, we want to be this helicopter parent just being hovering over them everywhere. You guys could barely see, and you're riding your bikes through town. You must have some close calls on your bikes. Yeah, quite often. Um, uh, you know, you'd have a close call. Or you'd... I remember riding once, and, and there was, you know, you'd either avoid a pothole. If you, you could have, if you could see, you'd avoid a pothole, <laughs> or you'd avoid a, a rock that was on the road. Um, but if you didn't, you know, if you couldn't see, you'd have to, to be able to just handle the ability to hit a pothole or hit a rock or whatever and be able to stay on your bike. That was just the way it was. And I don't think we had any close calls with cars. Um, not not until we sort of came closer into town. Um, but fortunately, 
my brother and I, we could see a little bit. So we're not totally, totally blind. So what, what can have, you explain that? What do you see? What can you, yeah, well, a little yeah. bit. Absolutely. So limited peripheral vision. So we can see when we were kids, about 10% spot in the middle. Uh, if you could imagine that, you know. Um, as we got older, it reduced down to seven, six, five, and it's probably more like four percent now as we're sort of close to the fifty mark. Um, I love, I love your attitude, Dean. I, I just love the, you know, we can see a little bit like four percent. Yeah, that's enough to do just about everything, isn't it? It's all how you look at the glass half empty, glass half full, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. So limited peripheral vision, but we can still see light and dark. We can see a hard edge, a good contrast on something. So, for example, when we were riding our bikes, we'd ride from Katingle into Tamworth in northern New South Wales, which is probably about 20 k, something like that. The white line on the side of the New England Highway is a very good contrast to the rest of the road. <laughs> so that white line led all the way into town. So we just ride on the left-hand side of that white line. Um, and you could hear the big trucks coming behind you and towards you, all that sort of thing. And our parents would be happy to let us do that. Wow. They and, would and be happy to that's let us in, do that. That's incredible parenting, I say. That, that is just yeah. amazing. And I think, I think we could take a leaf out of your parents' <clears> book <throat> and allow our kids a little bit more rope. Just te- teach them to stay on the right side of the line. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I teach them the things that they want that they need to avoid, and kids are pretty intuitive that they know what things to avoid, especially if they know that they exist. And the point was, that if we rode into town, we had to get ourselves back. So, you know, mum and dad never really offered to come and pick us up from town. If we went all the way, in, we'd have to ride all the way back. I love it. <laughs> I love it. So there's another lesson, another lesson in that, I guess that. We've got to let our kids be able to measure themselves and be able to achieve stuff on their own um, and, and not worry. And that is so important, I think, because the way that you've lived your life as an adult is is unbelievably impressive to me. And I we're going to share some of those thoughts in just a second. But before we get out of those schooling years, I want you to tell me a bit about your teenage years. Now, in leading up to this, obviously, you had the glasses, the that you, you, you referred to them as the Coke bottle glasses, the big thick ones, and it got to a point where they couldn't make them thick enough for you. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, like, normally if a person has glasses, it's normally prescription plus 0.25 or plus one or, or something like that. If you've got bad eyesight, you might have plus one and a half um, for long-sightedness. My brother and I were plus seven. Wow. That's the level of long-sightedness that we had in conjunction with this retinitis pigmentosa, this peripheral vision loss. So our glasses were at least a centimetre thick, at least a centimetre thick. And so we never used to read the blackboard. And if we had the teachers ever gave us any print material, they'd give us large print. And then also with the large print, we'd need a magnifying glass which was two inches thick and weighed of half a kilo that we'd have to hold sort of slumped forward to get our, our eye about 10 centimetres or five centimetres from the magnifying glass and five centimetres from the page to be able to, to read 
So really blue efficient. Is that what you're saying? Really efficient way to read. Yeah. Yeah. You could <laughs> see this. You could see one word at a time, two if it was um, two very short words. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so re- reading was, was never really a fluent skill that we learnt. But but with that, you, you, you learnt some life hacks, I think, along the way. And, and once you got to secondary school or high school, you actually engaged a mate to help you out. Tell us about that. Yeah, I had a great mate, Stevie Viney, uh, right through high school. The, the teacher would write all the notes up on the board and, and you know, I'd, potentially I think it's a, a, a way for teachers to get a bit of time to think they could say, okay, everyone, write down all these things I've got on the board. But I couldn't read the board, not even from two feet away. So I had a mate, Steve, the room would be quiet and he'd be going, reading things, you know, three or four words or a line at a time. And I would just have my notebook out with my pen and I'd just be writing down exactly what he would tell me to write as he was writing it. Um, unfortunately, when you're blind, you can't see very well what you're writing because it's not a great contrast. It's not a great, you know, your writing can't be real big. You know, you've got to write fairly small to be able to get it all in the one book. Um, but so I could never really read effectively what I had written on my notebook. I have a go at it with my magnifying glass, but a lot of the time it was like chicken scratching. Yeah. I couldn't read what I'd written there because I couldn't see I knew what an A looked like, but to be able to write it essentially with your eyes closed, you know, write sentences uh, was was almost doing it by imagination. So really what I learnt was I learnt as as I wrote it, it kind of stuck in my head and that was the way that I, I learnt through high school. Oh, wow. And I want to I want to talk about university because you went to university as well. Before we do that, though, because I don't want to skip too far in front of the story, is you before you went to uni, I would assume you actually helped your sister out by taking her somewhere in the car. Is that right? <laughs> Who told you that story? <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to keep that quiet, but oh, my my sister had a friend who lived about three or four blocks away. It wasn't a great distance. But still, it's a know, great when distance blind, when you, you can't see. Well, well, I was going to say, when you're blind, <laughs> you probably really shouldn't be driving. So I'm not encouraging this. Um, but yeah, I did. My sister needed to go down, and it was getting on on dusk, you know. So I was really, you know, we were a bit concerned about her walking down to her friend's place in the dark. So I said, <laughs> okay, I'll drive. I'll drive you down there. So hang on, hang on. So you're a bit concerned about her walking to a place in the dark. So hang on, we'll get the blind man and he'll drive us. That sounds like a way better option. That's good teenage logic. Um, and I, I had plenty of good teenage logic. So I drove my dad's ute, which was parked out on the curb out the front, so I didn't have to back it out. I might have crashed it if I had to back it, you see. Uh, so I drove her down the street and around the corner, dropped her at a friend's place, and then I drove it back um, and and did the U-turn in our street and parked it neatly again right where it was. Now, do your and parents know this story? They do know this story, <laughs> but they didn't know until probably about 10 years ago. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> That's great. They had no idea at the time. I parked it so well that it was the, it was the invisible crime. <laughs> 
<laughs> That's brilliant. <laughs> so, like I said, university was a thing. And, and for me, I was like, how do you go to university? So you've gone to university and studied environmental science in 2001. And tell us a bit about how did you do it? Well, I guess like the, the driving the car, you might think, how did he see where to go? You know, there's just you just learn to find ways to do things in a different way to someone else. So, for example, driving the ute, I could see the streetlight. I had just enough vision to be able to see uh, cars that were parked or the, the curb, a rough outline of where the curb was. So I was able to do that safely. But at university, you just learn to do something different. So when the teacher would would be writing something on the board, you would find that instead of waiting for them to finish and then taking down those notes in a visual way, you would just go with the context of what he was talking about. So I did environmental science. If they were talking about water conservation or if they were talking about um, identifying plants or something like that, you'd be looking at, okay, what's he saying in context to the subject? And then you'd be just gleaning the notes from the, from the things that he was saying. And you find that when people write something on the board, they actually do say, in a lot of cases, what they, what they write. And oftentimes, they'll say a word here and then something else and then they'll add to it but you've got to kind of piece everything together. And that's kind of the way that I took notes. Um, but I used for, for library work and book work was that, that beautiful two-inch thick magnifying glass and poor posture that got me through. <laughs> You're going to get a poor <laughs> posture holding that thing, aren't you, really? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> now, uh, crap. now back. Not, just, uh, not just university, you then uh, got married and had four kids and I know that as a parent myself that children at times may take advantage and I would imagine that they would take advantage of you in maybe a few different ways than they would be able to or would for me so why don't you tell us your experience of of your children maybe a couple of those uh stories that you've had with them and where they've maybe taken advantage but also was there anything that – was it tough at the start or did you just not even think about it? It was just another thing. Honestly, I never really thought too much about it, but definitely going back, looking back in hindsight, you know, the kids really had some sneaky tricks that they used to either keep out of trouble or to, to hide the fact that they were doing something they shouldn't be or if they were caught, then to actually – Keep clear of Dad when he was on the rampage. And so how would they? How would they keep clear? Them, uh, look, I had four girls, and they weren't—they weren't the little sit in the corner, you know, quiet, play with your dolls at the dollhouse kind of girls. They were pretty rough and tumble, so they would, you know, do things that would really get my goat sometimes, you know. And so, if I was ever after them, they would just so uh, they tear off down the hallway and disappear by hugging themselves against the wall of the hall. They'd hold their breath without moving, and I would not be able to see them. I wouldn't be able to hear them, and I wouldn't be able to find them. That was their theory. It worked a lot of the time, but not always. 
But that, they did that all the time, trying to uh, just keep out of keep out of trouble. <laughs> Kids are ingenious. They find ways to avoid trouble. They know because they obviously growing up with a dad who's blind, they they knew me as well as I knew me. You know, so they knew exactly what I could see. Yeah. They knew exactly what I couldn't see. So they knew that by not moving for a start, that's the first thing. I can see a bit of movement if you move, or if you move, I can hear you move. If you breathe, I can hear you breathe. But if you stop still, stop breathing, um, if you're really quiet, then then the chances are 99% that, I, that you're going to go under, undetected. <laughs> so, you know, my kids were pretty good at that. Yeah, I love it. Now, what about when you're when you're out travelling and you're in shops and things like that? Just regular day to day stuff, you know, with kids or even by yourself. Do you find it challenging <clears throat> to, uh, you know, find the bathroom or uh, those sort of common day things where it's not in your familiar surroundings of home? And how do you navigate that type of thing? Yeah, it, it is a big difficulty, and and for me, there's been a lot of fear, I guess, and anxiety through my life that I've had to overcome at different times to be able to get out and just do things um, and not become sort of antisocial or or stay home just because it's a little bit difficult to go out, um, even though I'm an outdoorsy person. So it caused me a fair bit of anxiety, and I. And, and I never really used a white cane until I'd been married about 10 years, probably. Um, so in the early days, I used to walk with my wife and she'd hold my hand or I'd, I'd, I'd hold my hand or my, or my daughter's hand um, and they'd do the sort of the guiding and that sort of thing. But there'd be times when I'd run into somebody like a pregnant lady or a, you know, just bump into them or, or a lady with a baby in the pram, I'd nearly trip over the pram or something because I didn't see them cut in from my peripheral vision. And they give me the dirtiest look, apparently. Apparently, because not um, like you could see it. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't see it. And it was real weird because they, they think I was so, so rude. Who's this ignorant guy who's just bashed into me, not even acknowledging or, or anything. And then Janelle, my poor wife, she'd get the, the dirty, filthy look afterwards. And it's because you just cannot tell externally that I'm that I'm blind. My eyes don't move around weird. I wasn't using a cane. I was, yeah. you know, you know, just apparently looking normal, looking, you know, like a fully-sighted person. Um, and I, I remember one time we we'd been out on a camping trip and uh, we were driving home and we pulled into a service station to fill up and we had. Three of our daughters, we hadn't had our fourth daughter at the time, three of them were in the back seat and my two-year-old, 18-month, two-year-old at the time needed to go to the bathroom. Um, my wife, we, we pulled up at the bowsing because we didn't want to block everybody. We had this trailer on the back and my wife didn't want to back the trailer and all that sort of thing. So I drew the short straw, Dean, you're going to have to take, you're going to have to take uh, Gabby into the bathroom for, for a toilet stop. So I took her, took her in. I, I, at this stage, I was still not using a white cane or anything like that. Went into the men's bathroom with my daughter. Wanted to take her into the cubicle. So I was using, holding her in one arm, using my 
my free arm to to feel the edge of the the door. It was open. Good. Time to go forward. Another feel forward. And I accidentally touched a guy who was standing at the loo he touched him on the backside. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. I could only imagine. I could have, oh, I couldn't believe it. Oh, man, what do I do now? <laughs> Will this guy be thinking that I'm coming on to him? And I thought, no, I'm holding a two-year-old girl. I think I might be safe there. Because he, he could have quite easily just swung around and give me one in the chop. Yeah. But I just back, I backed out of, out of, out of the cubicle quietly, you know, <laughs> stealthily, and I just stood as though nothing happened against the wall waiting for a, a free spot. You know, it was a, a, a long, awkward, cricket-chirping, silent pause that, that, that went on for about 20, 30 seconds. And uh, all of a sudden, the guy turned around, he came out to me and he said, look, mate, you put me off. <laughs> and then he took off. So, you know, I guess that was one way to get a free thought. But, uh, you know, <laughs> poor guy, I'm, I'm sure that uh, he, he was totally wondering what was going on. Oh, I love that. So I, was go- I, was- I, I, I snuck out to the car and slumped down. And I said, no, I'm never doing that again. <laughs> I was going to mention before when you were talking about running into the pregnant woman, I was going to mention we should be more forgiving of people. You mentioned that these ladies giving you dirty looks and I can understand why. But it made me think, I wonder if we could be a bit more forgiving of people because we sometimes don't know the situation. We don't know what's happening in their life. We never know what's happening in someone's life. People didn't know that you were blind. But then when you started telling that story, I don't know how forgiving I could be if someone touched me on the bum while I was in the toilet. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, yeah, we do have to chill a little, don't we? Oh, I you think know, we, we do need, need to, to chill to, a little. To sometimes, you know, we can get a bit uptight when someone, you know, wants to cut in on traffic, you know, or they want to, you know, get first in the queue or, whatever you know we need to just chill a bit and you mentioned that we need to that you learn to do things different ways that was super impressive to me because sometimes we allow ourselves to not achieve in our life because of excuses that we give ourselves and i'm sure you've done the same thing as everybody else and have moments where you've done that as well but i think you've shown a great example there of going to university and it would have been very easy for, for you with the condition that you have to say, look, that's too hard. I'm not going to bother doing that. That was so hard yeah, just getting I, through I, school. I, that's right. I think I'll just sit at home now and, and, you know, let someone look after me, you know, and just stay out of trouble, read books or listen to TV or something like that. Yeah. But, but that would actually, that would kill my personality. That would, that would send me into deep depression, I think, if I did that. Yeah. But I can understand why, well, as I mentioned, th- there is a fear and an anxiety related to going out, you know, and actually having uh, being having independent mobility yeah. when you have an eyesight problem or, or any other disability for that matter. You know, there's definitely issues that, that, that crop up in your, the back of your mind that say, what if this happens? What if that happens? You know, and, and fortunately, a lot of the time I've had my wife to to take my arm or to, to that I could take her arm or my daughter who would block the way if I was nudging out into traffic. You know, they'd, they'd push me back into the right court. Yeah. Um, but, you know, if, if 
if I wanted to, you know, have when I had my own uh, employed, you know, like anybody else and had to commute into the city, then I would have to work out a way that I was going to catch the bus or the train. And then once I got off the bus or the train, how am I going to find my way? Because the bus doesn't always stop in exactly the same point, you know. How am I going to find my way to my office? How do I know that there's not going to be uh, some construction scaffolding and or barriers that have been put up um, where they weren't there yesterday? You know, how do I know that that things aren't going to be different? You know, and it's a real challenge, and it's a, it can be a, a fear, you know, in the back of your mind that you've just got to constantly overcome and and just go out there and do it no matter what. And that's the, that's exactly the reason that I got you on because it's the attitude of just do it anyway, just did it anyway. I, mm. Life throws challenges. That's your challenge. Other people's challenges are different. But I just love <clears> what you said. Learn to find a way to do things different to other people. And you can still mm. achieve the same, but find a way. And so I think we need to make sure that we don't allow ourselves to wallow in our situation. And don't allow ourselves to accept that just because it's hard means we have to stop. It, we don't. We can keep going and f- find no. a different way and learn a new way. Exactly. I mean, there's quite often times when uh, well, my wife and I have renovated a number of houses. You know, my dad taught me, uh, you know, to – he taught me to measure. He taught me to, you know, use tools, you know including power tools. And I often, you know, I'd, I'd just have to find a different way. If I needed to cut something to 1,850 millimetres long, then I would just find a different way to do it. I'd use my tape. I'd measure the opening that I needed. I'd lock the tape in place. I was never super-duper accurate. I don't know why. <laughs> but I'd put, my, I'd put my thumb on the tape. I'd hold it. I'd drag this long bit of measuring tape back to my workspace. I'd put it out on my piece of timber or whatever I had to cut. I'd use a saw or something to mark it, not just with a pencil mark, because I wouldn't be able to see a pencil mark. I'd use like a nail or a scribe or the edge of my saw to actually mark a spot on the edge of the timber where I needed to, to do it. And then I'd, I'd square it up from there and, and either cut manually. If I had to cut with a power saw, I'd clamp something as a guide onto there, the right distance away from the line where I needed to cut so that the, the, the guide of the circular saw would just run right along that, that guide I'd clamped and it'd cut where I needed it to cut. So I just needed to find a different way to actually achieve the same result. And I've still got all my fingers. Wow. I love that. That is so brilliant. We can all find different ways to achieve what we want to achieve and that stuff shouldn't get in the way. I mean, even now, Dean, you run your own business. I know you're doing massage stuff now and you have another business that you run as well. And so certainly sure. not sitting around the house. No, definitely. Um, I, I run a, two businesses, and or three, well, two businesses now. One is our pedal go-kart hire company, uh, Go-Kart Wild. And, you know, we've been doing that for 10 years and, and – you know, quite, I do all the maintenance myself. You know, they're bicycles. They're, they're a four-wheel bicycle, but, you know, there's, there's things to fix and chains to tighten and tubes and tyres to change. And 
And <clears throat> apart from all that physical loading and unloading of trailers and different things, there's also all the business side of things, the, the emailing and the marketing and the, you know, phoning and talking to clients and the networking, all that sort of stuff, which I need to to find, you know, a, a way to do that. Um, and and I've always been a, a little proactive, but I, I, I also like to bring out the point that I, that I do get help from, from people. There are amazing, amazing people that, that help me or have helped me all the way from my parents to my mate Steve in high school to my, my mates at my massage college now who are amazing, amazing people that support me, the coaches there too, um, but also my wife in particular. I married her at 18 and, and I quite honestly don't know that she knew or she wouldn't have known exactly what she was getting herself into mm. um, at the time. Um, but there is not a braver, more beautiful person that she's been with. We've been together now, married for 27 years, and she she has really been a support to me going to uni because we got married while I was at uni and going to uni and, and the employment that I've had and the running the businesses, you know, being able to just solve the problems because they do crop up from time to time. For example, using a computer, I, mean, I have to use, when I was in university, I used to use the magnifying glass on the screen because there was no such thing as um, as text-to-speech technology. Yeah. There was no such thing as, as that. And But now you, you can actually, I use the keyboard now, I don't use a mouse, I use a keyboard to navigate around using the arrows and the tab and the, you know, there's a whole bunch of short keys strokes to to get around the computer system and everything that i go on uh i have a program that will actually to read that to me now, so if someone sends me an email i can see who it's from i can see the subject and i can tab down to any attachments and i can tab down to any the message of the of, of the thing and i can just use my arrows to navigate through that so it'll just read exactly hi dean how are you you know all those things it'll read it it'll read it to me but sometimes that that stuff, that technology, you gotta love it. Technology, it's great when it works, but when it doesn't, it's absolutely useless. It's not for me. You know, it's less than having a paperweight on my desk. Once my speech software fails, I I really need help, and that does happen. So I really take my hat off to my girls and to my wife and to a lot of people who supported me along the way to actually achieve these things. Um, so don't be afraid to ask for help and everyone needs help from time to time. Even if, even if you were going, Baron, if you were going to go and climb Mount Everest, you know, or something like that, you would have to find someone to run your business. You'd have to find someone to look after your kids, help you there. You'd have to find someone to teach you how to survive in a, you know, uh, high, high, low atmosphere, High altitude environment, cold on a rock face without killing yourself. You, everyone needs to get help and, and gain tips and tricks along the way. And and fortunately, there's not a lot of people who know how to climb Mount Everest, but there's a lot of people who can see who can um, and, and have helped me out along the way. 
and, and an example of that, I think, <clears throat> it's uh, that you had later on in life, uh, was you decided to raise some awareness about the condition that you had or blindness in general. And you would have had, have had to have a team to help you out with this, that's for sure. And you did a bike ride um, in 2010 with your brother, um, who is also blind, as we've discussed. Can you tell us a bit about that bike ride? Yeah, absolutely. So I say, I mean, no matter what the disability, but we were particularly focused on vision impairment and, and blindness, is that not, not only does the person with the disability need to get over their fears and anxieties to go out and have the attitude to go out and motivation to go out and do what they want to do, follow their dream, but also the perceptions from the wider public on what can a blind person do? What are they able to achieve? You're blind. How do you do that? Or you shouldn't be able to do that. Um, so we, my brother Lauren and I, and again with support, so my dad and, and Mitch, they were our drivers. We also had a publicist. But most importantly, we had two friends, John and Grant, who were our pilot riders. So we, and our eyesight's gotten worse. We've unfortunately been forced to go on to from a single bike to a tandem bike. You know, it's a little dangerous now for us. So we need to have a good friend who'll ride on the front of, of our tandem with us. So we rode 4,127.4 kilometres from wow. the, Sw the Swan River in Perth to the Opera House in, in Sydney. So from Perth yeah. to Sydney, you rode in how, <clears throat> how many days? It was 24 days of riding. Uh, we did it over four weeks. So we, we would ride for six days and have a one-day rest day where we didn't do any riding. Um, we did that for four weeks. So we, we you know, there were lots of blisters and I complaints bet. for the first week and a half. Um we, we'd been training for, for six to 12 months prior to that, you know, and we thought we were reasonably fit, but we, we clearly had no idea whatsoever about what it would be like to actually be on a, on a bike for six to seven hours of the day. You know, we would ride an average of 170 kilometres, and I think our biggest day was 270 wow. um, k's. Um, and that was the day we rode across the Malabar with a tailwind, actually. So we, we, we had help from... Uh, I'd take from that help, man. Up, I'd take it. From, from the man upstairs as well. <laughs> so, yeah, we, we, we had no idea what it would really take to, to ride. But the body is an absolutely amazing thing. And, and we'd done the preparation, so our bodies responded appropriately and we... we built up our level of fitness, I think, within the first week or 10 days. After that, we didn't have too much pr trouble as far as fitness was concerned. But there was the, the 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 elements then. We were in the rain, we were in the heat, we were in the cold, we were in locust plagues, we were in, you know, busy traffic. There was, there was times, you know, when we had big trucks going past on the new highway and and all sorts of things, you know. So it was, there was certainly some challenging times as we as we made our journey across 
across the country. Um, but likewise, let's mention all the amazing people. There were there were uh, cycling groups and school groups that just wanted to be to be part of the action. You know, they would they would ride. We'd meet them in the town in the morning, and we'd ride for ten k's with fifty school kids on their little bikes up the highway. You know, Very and, cool. and with a few with a few teachers as well, and other cycling groups. You know, that had come and ride with us. You know, you'd have the you'd have the family groups right through to the uh, triathlon kind of guys who just want to get out for a fun 20, 30 k ride, and they'd ride with us, which was absolutely amazing. Uh, and, and totally enjoyable. And, and we had support from Vision Australia and from Virgin and Optus uh, uh, to get us right the way across. Wow, unbelievable. That is an unbelievable effort. I couldn't think of riding that far at all. I think I went for a 50k bike ride once and I was cactus at the end of that. So don't worry about your 4,000. <laughs> you gotta, you got to just keep doing it. That's just the, keep riding. That's, is amazing. Oh, yes, it is. I agree. Look, there's yeah, been a... So even when you, sorry, Baron, even when you come up to the barrier, you end up feeling like you're hitting the wall because of whatever reason, whether it's a emotional, whether it's physical, um, whether it's uh, technology, you've just got to go sit back and you've got to go, okay, there is a way around this. There is go- there is light at the end of the tunnel, um, literally for me. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, you've, you've got to just get that mental strength or have someone else to help you get through that obstacle. And everybody has that, that ability and anyone can do it. If I can do it, then anybody can do it. And something that stands out about you, Dean, is that you believe that you can do any of these things. That doesn't mean you have to do it by yourself and you realize at times that you need to get some help, but the belief is there first and foremost. And it inspires me, what you've said today inspires me to know that I can go and achieve whatever the heck I want. And if I have to get some help along the way, that's totally fine. But I can go and chase whatever I want, remembering that sometimes we just have to learn to do it a different way than what we thought we'd have to in the first place. Absolutely. Absolutely. And be gracious about all the help that you get. You know, you've really got to take the time to acknowledge the fact that I couldn't have done this without my wife's help. I couldn't have done this without my mate Grant or my mate Steve in high school. I wouldn't have been able to achieve any of these things and and that's what that's what life is really about is everybody taking the time to help one another to achieve the things that we really are passionate about um, so that we can all succeed in life um, and feel fulfilled happy and um, live a great life wow I, I no better words said I think your attitude is a great example as well and that through all these challenges you've found the humor been able to laugh about it as we go through and i think that's just just amazing and i think anybody listening today can take something from from dean's words so dean thank you so much for being with us today i really really appreciate it uh you sharing your story being so open and uh sharing some of those fun stories as well and of those challenges of not being able to see so thank you so much 
You're welcome, Grant. I'm glad I'm still around to tell the tale. Yeah, <laughs> so am I. <laughs> so am I. Uh, but as I always Appreciate say, it. as I always say at the end of my podcast, I encourage you to subscribe to my channel, um, get involved, and and have a listen to these amazing stories. And there's going to be more coming at you. I've got plenty more in the pipeline. So stay tuned uh, for the next one that will be coming soon. Thanks for thanks for listening, folks.